It's a beautiful day to be assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? A beautiful day to come together as He has given us the privilege and blessing to do it and to offer to Him the heartfelt expression of our worship. In John 4 verse 24, it still says that God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And today as we have assembled for that purpose, we've sung these songs of praise and adoration. We've prayed unto God and for the next few moments... Let's give some thought to a man named Apollos. In fact, that's the title that I've given to the lesson. The man Apollos. And we first encounter this gentleman in Acts 18. And as we do that, we are in fact impressed on one account. But we're also amazed on another. And let's develop all of that as the course of our lesson for the next little while this morning. This next slide is one that in an introductory way brings before us the following. May I suggest to you that some characters of the Bible, I suppose, are a bit more overlooked than others. And almost immediately in the Old Testament, may I suggest Joshua is truly one of the unsung characters in all the Bible. He certainly is the successor of Moses, and we know so much about Moses. But yet, what a great work Joshua did. In addition to him... The shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ is so large, maybe we're tempted to overlook John the Baptist. And yet, he was the one preparing the way for the Master, and he had a vital role to play in preparing the soil, if you please, for the reception of the Great One to follow him. Finally, may I suggest the man who is the subject of the lesson today. I suspect if you and I were just to generally be asked, what do you know about Apollos? Maybe our knowledge of him would be fairly little, but yet what a tremendous person he was. Let's study about him this morning. I thought the first part of the lesson we would do is in the following consideration. Namely, what about the qualities in as much as they are specifically given to us? And then following that, we'll extract several lessons and apply them to ourselves, striving to learn what we can from, from the life of Apollos. These, this statement begins like this. In only ten New Testament verses do we have explicit reference to Apollos. In other words, his name appears so few times in many ways, and yet the first occurrence is here. We notice he was a Jew. He was one who was aware of those Old Testament statements and prophecy, and not only that, he was born in Alexandria. Now maybe that doesn't have as much significance to you and me as perhaps it might. In the ancient world, few cities rivaled Alexandria in terms of its reputation for scholarliness, its reputation for an appreciation of learning. In fact, the finest library in the ancient world was situated at Alexandria. And yet that's where Apollos was born. He grew up then with an appreciation of learning and knowledge and all of the blessings that would come with it. In fact, we'll have more to say about his learning here in just a moment. But you'll also notice this. The text in verse 24 of Acts 18 describes him as eloquent. May we give some thought to that word. What does it mean to say that Apollos was an eloquent man? The actual Greek word literally means this. Skilled in knowledge and speech. May I suggest to you it would seem that Apollos was an ex a very, very skilled orator. He could talk with persuasive capability in the hearing of others. He could present a case and make it convincing and persuasive. 
Apollos was, you see, a very talented man in that way. Not only that, you'll notice he was rather highly learned and educated, for that too is included in that, in that Greek word. You'll notice one more thing is stated. It says he was mighty in the Scriptures. You see, this Apollos was not only one who gave his attention to learning, let's say, secular things, he was also very knowledgeable. Remember, he was a Jew, but not just as a typical Jew. He was exceedingly thoroughly acquainted with the Old Testament. Now, all of that's going to reach a bit of a conclusion in just a moment because it says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. In fact, verse number 24 closes by saying that he came to Ephesus and this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. That word literally means he had been taught by word of mouth. There had been a time and an occasion in which Apollos had sat at the feet of those who were teachers, those who were, say, professors, and he learned from them. You and I, of course, well know that that still is a very effective way of presenting truths and ideas. One last thing. It says he was fervent in the Spirit. And at the bottom of that slide, again, might you note with me, that word means eager, enthusiastic, zealous. This man, Apollos, already has a number of qualities and characteristics that are worthy of some reflection. Maybe it is in light of all those things. He was ready to bubble forth with the Word of God. Now, what is to be made of all of this? Well, the next slide leads us to note this. He used this skill, he used this ability that he had to teach and to proclaim in a public way the things that, have, that were of God. But there was an observation made in verse 25. It says, He taught diligently the things of the Lord. Now that word diligently carries with it the thought of carefulness. Apollos didn't just preach whatever came to his heart and mind. He was very serious and careful about proclaiming what was the truth of God, but it says he knew only the baptism of John. Now one must be convicted and impressed with the fact that here was a man who publicly preached and proclaimed due to his conviction, but he only knew the baptism of John. It's at that point that these observations are to be noted. Apollos was a very, very highly respected man later in the New Testament. Could I invite you to note in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12, it was on that occasion that as Paul first made comments to the church at Corinth, some of them were saying, I am of Peter. Some were saying, I am of Jesus. Some were saying, I am of Paul. And yet there were some who were saying, I am of Apollos. Apollos was so respected, there were even those who chose to borrow either his name or to be de declared and cataloged as followers of him. And did you notice, here he was, ranked right alongside Paul and Peter and Jesus. In the ancient world, Apollos was exceedingly highly regarded. In fact, you'll notice later in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 4, one more time the thought and name of Apollos is mentioned in there. One more time, Paul said... I planted, Apollos watered. Paul, Apollos was a gentleman who had such a great effort of work in that Corinthian church in which Paul could say, though I planted it, Apollos has been a critical figure in the advancement, in the development, in the growth and maturity he watered. 
no doubt we're all already a bit impressed with the kind of reputation and the kind of gentleman that this man Apollos was. He had influenced very many people for good, according to 1 Corinthians 3. And maybe finally, what a great worker he was for the Lord. Now, those ideas and those passages are going to be described to us later. But in Acts 18, 27, he actually, it says in that verse, came to a different region, and there the brethren had written ahead to make a statement of passage, an invitation, if you please, for him. Later, we notice in 1 Corinthians 16 and Titus 3, again, he is mentioned as having such a great effort and work. I say all of these things to say there still are so many principles of utility for you and me today. Let's begin to develop a few of them. What about the man Apollos and what might you and I learn that can help us to be more like what we ought to be? The first thing that we might note, point number one, Apollos was regarded for his eloquence. In fact, the text by inspiration affirms it and yet... On the point of verse number 25, he was still mistaken. He was wrong. He was in error. And so our first observation is this. It is entirely possible to be eloquent and still be wrong. Let's cast a spotlight on that the following way. As I mentioned a moment ago, here's the time to consider the fact that Apollos only knew the baptism of John. Isn't it true John's baptism was very noteworthy, and it was very important in its day. In fact, you'll notice, as the New Testament describes that particular baptism, John the Immerser, he came. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it says, He taught and preached about baptism, and it was a baptism for the remission of sins. That being said, you'll notice that as John made that statement here, Apollos was aware of that baptism. But you and I know well the New Testament teaches that there was a greater and more fantastic baptism. It was the one in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't Jesus give a special commandment? In Matthew 28 verse 19, "...you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature." Now, as he described that baptism, what was it he said? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, not in the name of John. Now, when John taught and he made statements about his baptism, Jesus had not yet died on the cross. And yet, that was the only baptism Apollos knew anything about. Might I invite you to note this? Apollos was a very skilled orator, a skilled speaker, a skilled presenter. But that skill did not mean that he was right in everything. Here was a case where a man was eloquent but still wrong. Maybe two final thoughts would be these. I suppose that there is always going to be in the human family a tendency, in fact a very strong tendency, to accept what someone who is very eloquent is able to present. That has always been true, hasn't it? And even to this day, a person, a gentleman who is able to articulate and speak so eloquently and so persuasively, quite often that person can develop a large following simply because of his capability of speaking. You and I have seen many, many examples of that in history. Could I invite you to notice in 2 Peter 2.18... 
there's even a reference made, stated in the following way. In that passage, there were those who, the text says, speak great swelling words. Now, what's the context? As Peter identifies that, he says, These who speak great smelling, swelling words are the very ones who are leading you, teaching you what is it the case of God. They were false teachers. May you and I learn then this rather valiant lesson. Eloquence is a fine gift, I suppose, to have, but far greater still is truth. And far greater still is conviction and the presentation of that truth. Because in one final passage, in Matthew 18, 6, all of us are warned about this. What did Jesus say on that occasion about one who would cause a little one to stumble? So the description is this. Here is one who is older, one who perhaps has an obligation relative to position of authority, and yet you call someone who is your disciple, who watches you to stumble. Jesus says, what a tragedy. He, in fact, described the seriousness that went with that causing this younger one to stumble. It'd be better for a millstone to be hanged about his neck and cast into the sea. Now, that's a frightening consideration, isn't it? So lesson number one has taught us, at least in regard to Apollos, this matter of how useful eloquence can be. But here, he was still wrong. What about lesson two? You'll notice that Apollos was an exceedingly religious man. And yet he too, he too was still to be noted as wrong. Being religious doesn't make you just by itself right. There's a lot of religious people, and I suppose always have been. And yet that religion by itself doesn't make one right. Let's develop that point beginning like this. We noted earlier that Apollos was born at Alexandria, a city renowned for its learning and a city highly respected for that. And that learning had led him himself to be instructed of the Lord, and that instruction had even brought him to be diligent and fervent. But isn't it true? A lot of individuals in the Bible had some measure of religion. Were they pleasing to God? In James 2 verse number 19, perhaps the pinnacle of all examples would be this one. The devils believe. Even the demons of hell believe in Jesus. May I ask, are they going to be saved? We all know the answer to that. You see, being religious or wearing some consideration of religion by in and of itself is not enough. Because as you and I notice here, here was a man named Apollos, absolutely religious. In fact, he was publicly presenting that which he was convicted of was right. But yet he was mistaken. At the bottom of that slide, you'll notice a number of other examples of the Bible of individual circumstances wherein there was religion. When Paul came to the city of Athens in Acts 17, what was it he found? He found many, many statues and idols erected. So many, in fact, that one of them was even directed to the unknown God just in case they had forgotten any one of them. And even there, Paul said, I perceive in all things you are very religious. Paul testified to the fact they were religious, but may we ask, were they religiously right? And of course they weren't, for in the sermon that followed, Paul dramatically helped them see in great effort the fact 
that the things to which they had directed their attention were not God at all. As you and I close that slide, what about the Lord's famous statement in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1? As He spoke about the Pharisees on that occasion, He said, they indeed are very religious. In fact, so much so, make sure you follow what they teach you, but don't you do what they do. May I ask, were they correct in all of their matters of religion? Jesus on so many occasions rebuked them and encouraged them to understand that their perception was not correct. What about point number three? So far, Apollos, we've noted this man himself was religious but wrong. He was eloquent but wrong. This third point, he was fervent in spirit and wrong. That phrase, fervent in spirit, isn't it very intriguing? What does it mean to be fervent in spirit? We noted earlier as we passed through that description that in a very quick way it carries the idea of enthusiasm. It carries the idea of passion. It carries the thought of eagerness with respect to the object. We would have to be impressed with Apollos in that regard. If you were a neighbor to him, you would no doubt sense the high enthusiasm in this man for what he believed. But yet, in the midst of all of that, he taught with care, he taught with boldness, he taught with a sense of urgency. But all of that leads us to note this. Did that alone make him right? Is sincerity ever been enough by itself to make one acceptable to God? That question has no doubt with care rested on so many of our minds and for well reason it should. Many a person in the Bible was sincere in what he or she was doing and only later did we find out that God wasn't pleased with it. Let's revisit Apollos for a moment. In Acts 18, verse number 25, it says, "...and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord." That fervency in spirit, notice, prompted him to speak in a public way. He was so concerned and careful about the matters related to the lives of others that he felt it incumbent to share with them, to preach to them. But in light of all of that, you'll notice, let's make a quick application for us. Does God expect, does He demand that we be enthusiastic, that we be eager with respect to this gospel message? Surely He does. In fact, that verse we noted at the outset of the lesson, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must do so how. It's easy enough to cast a spotlight on that demand for truth, meaning that we must worship according to the pattern and plan, and that which has His approval in the Word of God. But that also was described in these words, one must worship in spirit. What does that mean? May I suggest to each of us that that original word carries with it this thought that our heart is engaged in it. We come together and we are delighted to participate in worship. We're not just spectators. We look forward to singing and to praying. And we're eager to, to, to participate in the giving of the Lord's Supper and in a consideration of the Word of God. Is your heart and mind in it as... Apollos' would have been. He was fervent in spirit. We must give him credit for that. 
our lesson, again, leads us to know being excited and enthusiastic by itself, though, is the problem. Let's finish that up like this. In Romans 10, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul makes a dramatic statement about this very topic. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Paul himself made observation. Here were individuals, enthusiastic, absolutely, fervent in spirit without a doubt, on fire, if you please, in light of what they believe. Surely they were, but he said they are not motivated and led by the knowledge of God. And so there was another case of someone who was enthusiastic and fervent, but wrong. Today, you and I live 20 centuries this side of the actual pinning of these New Testament events. And sometimes it is still true that there are those who seemingly wish to rest everything about their eternal salvation on some degree of enthusiasm. A feeling, if you please, that may emanate from within them. Now, you and I would be quick to say it's entirely possible for there to be such a feeling and to still be wrong. Maybe one final thought would be that word zeal and the way that we see that presented in the lives of some in the Bible. In 1 Kings 18, maybe we have an interesting scene that reminds us about what zeal can do. Here was a situation where Elijah was the most well-known and public of the prophets of God at the time. But the nation of Israel had turned its back on God. They had chosen to follow idolatry through the encouragement of Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah thought that he was standing virtually alone. And yet a contest, if I may call it that, developed on Mount Carmel, wherein Elijah directly confronted the prophets of Baal. And as he did so, he told the people who were watching, If Baal be God, then serve him. But if Jehovah is God, then serve Him. He boiled it down to something that simple. And then to illustrate and prove it, He allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. Let's then do the following. Let's prepare sacrifices and you call on Baal to consume yours and I'll call on Jehovah to consume mine and we'll see who's the true God. And you and I will remember how that day developed. For virtually the whole day, the prophets of Baal called on God and shouted and danced and paraded around the sacrifice and cut themselves so that blood was gushing forth, calling upon Baal to answer, but he never did. And ultimately, Elijah said, now it's my turn. Prepared the resulting sacrifice, poured water upon it, and he just humbly and submissively prayed unto God, and God sent fire from heaven that not only consumed the sacrifice, but in fact consumed all the water that had been poured upon it. You and I notice, were those prophets of Baal zealous? Oh, you couldn't question that. Were they enthusiastic? Without a doubt. But they were wrong. Today, may you and I obviously be enthusiastic. We had better be. If we come for worship and our heart's not in it, if it's just a ritualistic habit then we're at fault. 
because we understand that Apollos at least teaches us the importance of that fervency in spirit. But you and I also would certainly appreciate the need for that truth to go along with it. As you and I close that slide, it brings us to lesson four. And this fourth lesson I've entitled as follows. It's even possible to use some scripture and still be wrong. Now, I stated that with care, and I hope each of us are aware of the lesson that's in it. May I ask, did Apollos use some scripture? The text in verse 25 goes on to say, after he was mining the scriptures, it says, He taught the things of the Lord. There's not a doubt, I don't think, that if you and I had been in the audience... Apollos could have taught a dramatically good lesson about the love of God. He could have taught an incredibly powerful lesson about the providence of God, say, discussing the ancient people of Israel. No doubt he could have taught much in a very sterling way about the need for repentance. But you see, there was some aspect of his teaching that was improper. As you and I develop it this way, the text is very clear. He knew only the baptism of John. You can well imagine that as Apollos preached his sermon, there came to a point where he perhaps would have emphasized the need to be baptized in light of the baptism of John. And although almost every other part of the sermon would have been great, that wasn't, because that wasn't the truth. The Word of God is marvelous, isn't it? It is so amazing. The sum of thy word is truth, Psalm 119, verse 160. And that word sum is S-U-M, the grand total of it. Not choosing a verse here or there, not picking our favorite verse and ignoring others, but it's all that God has to say on that particular subject. The sum of thy word is truth. In fairness, there you notice this. We highlighted this earlier, but let's, let's put a few more details to it. John had come, and he had come as the preparer of the way of the Lord. A voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Mark 1, verses 4 and 5. And he did his job exceedingly well, preparing the way for the coming of the great Son of God. But that baptism that John taught, remember it wasn't predicated on the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus hadn't died at that point. In fact, John was put to death before Jesus was ever crucified. You might recall that Herod had John's head cut off in Matthew 14, and the crucifixion of our Savior didn't occur until Matthew 27. You see, John couldn't have taught about the nature of the Lord's sacrifice at Calvary, for Jesus hadn't died at that point. John did teach, though, about baptism. He taught about the baptism that was of him. The baptism that was the baptism of John, as we often call it. It was a baptism that the New Testament, in fact, gave a great deal of significance to. But you and I know that it was, was not permanent. The baptism of John was not to last until the end of time. For that reason, you notice in Luke 7, verses 29 and 30, God expected the people of that day, to submit to the baptism of John. And in fact, they resisted the things of God if they refused to submit to it. 
among other things, that teaches us how important baptism is. Even under that previous consideration of John the Baptist, God expected the people to be baptized by John. But again, John wasn't Jesus. He was not the Son of God. He himself declared, I'm not worthy to unloose the latchet of his shoes. There's one greater coming after me. John knew that. And when our Savior died at Calvary, from that point forward, the, the impetus was to be baptized in the name of Jesus, not John. As we noted earlier, to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we begin to see here, the events of Acts 18 were several years after the establishment of the church. And John was still, or rather, Apollos was still teaching about the baptism of John. As you and I close that slide, can't we then make this at least practical application for the circumstances of our life today? I've tried to state it this way. There are individuals in our world today who could preach a masterful sermon on the love of God or maybe a masterful sermon on the nature of repentance or an incredibly stirring lesson as it touches the providence of God perhaps. And then there comes a time in the lesson when baptism is under discussion and suddenly the teaching is not right. That would be very much like the case of Apollos. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse number 31, we have an Old Testament consideration that at least reminds us of this. God said, The prophets prophesy falsely, the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. There was people, there were individuals who loved that particular impropriety, that thing that was not correct, and they wanted it taught. In Isaiah 30, verse 10, the prophets, or rather the people declared, Speak to us smooth things. They weren't interested in hearing the things of God. They wanted that which was smooth and what was easily palatable to them. I suppose we can make a bit of a conclusion. Point number five. As we've looked at all of them, aren't you also impressed in at least one other way when you give thought to Apollos? For verse number 26 says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. We've highlighted so far today the wrongness in so many ways. He was eloquent but wrong, religious but wrong, fervent in spirit but wrong, even used some scripture and was still wrong. But to be entirely fair, we should make this observation. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him preaching, and his preaching about the baptism of John and his insistence on it. Notice they, in a private way, took him unto them and they taught him. They shared with him. They presented to him the truth in regard to the baptism under the authority of Jesus Christ. How did Apollos react to it? You and I know well the possibilities in light of what we've seen perhaps in, in, in other people. Isn't it easily possible to be defensive? To, in other words, think, well, who is he to tell me anything? I'm the one that's knowledgeable in the Scriptures. I grew up in, in Alexandria. This man, Aquila, doesn't know more than I do. Who is he to try to tell me anything? 
Have you ever known of someone who perhaps had an attitude like that is really difficult to, to, to share with them? It's difficult to teach them because they have an attitude whereby they are not interested and do not feel as if you have anything to say. Aren't you thankful Apollos wasn't like that? Here were two individuals, Aquila and Priscilla. Excuse me. And as they came with direction to him, it was their desire to share with him. And the text says that they expounded unto him the way of God. So they took his knowledge of the baptism of John, extended it by helping him understand the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And the verse closes by saying, more perfectly. They no doubt with great care and diligence and also great love attempted to help him see what was the shortcoming in his understanding. And aren't you thankful that Apollos apparently listened with care, he listened with eagerness, and he understood what they taught. He was receptive to that. That kind of attitude is a very commendable one, isn't it? On this particular slide, may I say that partly the things that we see later in those later references to him, he was a towering figure in terms of respectful consideration in the New Testament. We noticed it in the book of Titus, the book of 1 Corinthians. Part of that towering disposition was his receptiveness to the truth. One of the last things on that slide would be that great model of behavior for all, for every one of us, isn't it? How often does the Bible encourage us in an attitude of humility, in an attitude of desire for an appreciation of the things of God? In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23, Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The wise man asserted, You buy it, you obtain it, you acquire it, and do so at all cost. And don't ever, ever sell it. Let's add to that this one. In John 8, verse 32, didn't Jesus say, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free? That truth of which the G, that Jesus spoke, it was, of course, the great truth of the gospel, the truth of God. And isn't it amazing that you'll know it. And it's, it is that which will make you free. To that, might we add in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, the church that you and I love so, it is described as the pillar and ground of the truth. Among all things else that must be said of the church, and certainly there are many, one thing that must be true, she must remain as the uncompromising pillar and ground of the truth. Perhaps finally, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that sweet passage in which all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, it's easily seen then, isn't it, that this Word of God is appropriate for correction. When I find myself amiss, when I am in fact in that circumstance, you'll notice it's the Word of God when used. It's not just opinion. It's not just perception. Then it's that which is able to help one see what must be changed. What about the man Apollos? Five things we've at least reflected upon in his life this morning. Why don't we conclude the lesson then with a summary slide like this. As I prepared this lesson, I became more impressed with Apollos on many occasions. 
But among the things that I have brought for each of us to consider today, there are lots of things taken by themselves which do not make one right. Religion by itself doesn't make one right. Zeal by itself doesn't make one right. Eloquence by itself doesn't make one right. But what makes one right is the truth, and the truth must make use of all of these. In truth, you and I will be zealous. In truth, you and I will be enthusiastic. In truth, you and I, of course, will always be receptive to the truth. As we close this lesson this morning, may we each have an opportunity to analyze ourselves and to ask things that certainly are useful for our own consideration before the eyes of God. Am I enthusiastic? What about you? Are you and I religious? We must be. Are you and I receptive to the truth? Like Apollos, we should want to be because we want to be what's right in the sight of God. Today, if there would be anyone in this audience who, upon perhaps reflecting on the life of Apollos, maybe reflecting on certain other things and choices that you and I have made, am I living in a way that's different from what I profess? Jesus always frowned upon that kind of behavior, didn't He? He frowned upon those who said one thing and did something else. Are you and I faithful and true? This song of encouragement has been selected. If there be anyone in the audience who has never become a Christian, would you please think with urgency, to think with seriousness, you aren't promised tomorrow, Proverbs 27, 1. Every one of us are described in a way like this. Your life is like a vapor appearing for a little time and vanishing away, James 4, 13. Don't you want to be ready? The only way to die in the Lord is to live in the Lord, and you could put Him on in baptism today. The gospel plan of salvation. Believe in Jesus with all your heart. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. As you do that, He adds you to the church. As you proceed to walk through life with Him, if faithful till death, the crown of life is yours, Revelation 2.10. But if you stumble in such a way to bring public reproach upon the name of Christ, the church, perhaps even His gospel, you do need to come back to your first love. There's a group of people here at Pippin who we would delight to pray to God on your behalf and to surround you in the arms of acceptance and fellowship. But if you have reached that point in life and have yet to come back home, why are you waiting? There is no good answer to that really. Because think for just a moment of the terror that would surround you if you pass from this life in that state. As you then stand before God in judgment, what answer could you give? I was waiting for a better day, and God says, I gave you many, many days. As you made claim, I was waiting for a better time. What better convenient time could there be than today? The gospel invitation is extended to you as well, for Jesus wants you back home. He hasn't given up on you. You've given up on Him. And that's not His fault. The gospel message is directed to you. It's directed to all of us. And if you need to come home, the Lord Jesus is pleading with you. He's imploring you. And our congregation here is excited to, to, to in fact, do the very same. This song of encouragement has been selected. Brother Larry is going to lead us in that. And if one or more would wish to come at this time, we would invite you to do it now while together we stand and while we sing.